Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Nico Franks and this week's edition comes from Series Fest in Denver, Colorado, where the fifth edition of the growing TV festival was held this week. An antidote to business-orientated TV markets full of suits, Series Fest celebrates the world of independent drama and comedy with pilot screenings featuring new talent, panels and creative masterclasses. Designed to act as a place where budding US creators and studios can link up, the six-day festival also featured some major names from the world of TV thanks to its backing from US cable giant Liberty Global. That included a conversation between Liberty Global CEO Mike Fries and Netflix Chief Content Officer Ted Sarandos, who discussed some of the inner workings of the global streamer, which is set to release a dizzying 700 original series in 2019 alone. In this episode, you'll hear execs from heavyweight US producers such as Shondaland, Lionsgate and Bridesmaids director Paul Fague's fledgling production company Powder Keg. But first, I caught up with British film and TV producer Stephen Garrett, best known as founder of Kudos and for his work on such hits like Spooks and The Night Manager. One of his latest projects, The Rook, which he executive produced via his prodco Character 7, was screened at Series Fest ahead of its debut on Stars in the US this Sunday. The show, which had once been set for Hulu before moving to Stars, mixes supernatural elements into the spy genre that the veteran producer has mined so effectively. I began by asking Stephen whether such genre bending has become a necessity in order for a show to stand out in such a crowded market. Not a necessity, but I think, again, going back to the world that I grew up in, being a little bit older than you, where there were only cop shows and doc shows and lawyer shows. Um, we're living in very exciting times because with the streamers, with suddenly this sort of limitless real estate for, for work to appear, um, now there's a pressure to differentiate yourself from your rivals. So the world is very open to ideas that might have been deemed bonkers a few years ago, and now they're music to everyone's ears. So, I mean, genre, genre bending, I think, has always been interesting. And going back to an early Kudos show, Life on Mars, you know, that was a cop show, but again, with a kind of supernatural element. So, and Doctor Who, I grew up on, I remember the first episode of Doctor Who, which dates me. Um, but, you know, there's, there's always been the opportunity to take, take the conventional and spin it and come up with something that's quite intoxicating. And so far, you've been fairly... Um loyal to the traditional broadcasters in terms of the partners that you've been working with, people like BBC, AMC, Stars, rather than the streamers. Has that been a conscious decision? No. Um, I, uh, I've had conversations with, meetings with all the now usual suspects, so I'm completely open to doing business with whoever will take the idea. And I start, I start with the idea and then I just want to find someone who's passionate to, to make that with me. Um, I was pitching an idea a year or so ago um, with uh, an old friend of mine, the writer Simon Beaufoy, and we went to all the streamers, but it ended up in a, in a conventional space, and that's just the way it works. So, no, I'm completely agnostic. And what's your take on the impact those streamers are having, you know, into whether it be it the talent deals that they're doing or the kind of multiple series orders and then sometimes cancelling shows now um, quite abruptly? How is that impacting what you do? 
Well, I, I think it's largely positive. Um, it's, it's created a, a competition in the UK that BBC, ITV and Channel 4 and Sky weren't really used to because in the past, if you developed a show, it was pretty clear if it, was a, if it felt right for BBC One, it probably wasn't right for ITV or Channel 4 or Sky. And suddenly, the huge power wielded by Netflix and Amazon um, has forced them to, in a way, up their game, to be honest and competitive. And, and that's great. Com competition for ideas is thrilling. So that's a positive. The, the other thing that's happened is there's a kind of... Um, uh, mutually assured destruction in the upping of budgets um, and as long as that lasts it's a brilliant time to be a producer of drama there will come a point where the world is going to implode I don't know who's going to blink first but someone's going to and at that point we'll go back to scrabbling around for morsels but at the moment there's a lot of money around to make great drama to tell great stories and that's thrilling and again you, you thank the streamers for appearing when they did because just before they appeared we were looking at a world where the manufactured reality shows of the kind of Jersey Shore variety were getting ratings almost as good as not very good dramas and for half the price and as drama producers we could see broadcasters thinking huh do we really need to spend this money on this very expensive not very appealing fare and mercifully the cavalry arrived just in time and we're in a very good place and you've worked on some of the most iconic British uh, shows in recent years but more and more with the input of US partners is that having a any sort of effect in terms of the kind of unique kind of Britishness of shows at all? No, I think I think that's a really good question. I think some of the great British dramas have have been great because of their cultural specificity. Um, and I, I think there's no doubt there's a pressure on storytellers to try and come up with stories that are organically international. The truth is very few stories are organically international. So you end up with naming no name, say an American cop in regional Britain or a British cop in regional America. And you can kind of smell the um, co-production confection uh, a mile off. And on the whole, those don't work. Um, so I, I relish shows that have a kind of cultural specificity. And I think you know, you look at something like Fleabag and clearly that was not made with the eye on the international market. That was just made as a personal passion project coming out of a one-woman show. And it had a kind of universal impact by virtue of being culturally specific. So I hope that we can go on telling culturally specific stories that come from integrity that are passionately made, passionately told, and they work because they resonate by virtue of being true. Um, but there's no doubt that for the more expensive shows, um, 
you're not going to get arrested unless you can demonstrate at the conceptual stage that there's likely to be an appeal on both sides of the Atlantic, and that's a challenge. They're, they're hard to come by. And The Rook, as an example, filmed in London, set in at least the majority in London. You know, all credit to Lionsgate and Stars, frankly, for embracing what's pretty much a quintessentially British notion, albeit one written by an American who lives in Australia. So it's a it's a sort of peculiar hybrid, but uh, you know, as you will see when you watch it, um, the scope for American casting is not great, and that wasn't the reason it was greenlit. I mean, actually, it's it's works because it's it's very British and plays to all sorts of British tropes. Um, and so you might ask Lionsgate and Stars what drew them to this quintessentially British notion in the first place. But it will work for them. And coming through the pipeline, you've, you're working on um, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold uh, and, dare I say it, season two of The Night Manager. Is there any update you can give me on those projects? Nope. <laughs> um, they, you, you described their status perfectly. Well, it was worth a shot. Elsewhere at Series Fest, Alison Eakle, head of fiction and non-fiction at Shonda Rhimes' prodco Shondaland, spoke to me about the production company's exclusive deal with Netflix. This, she says, is allowing it to explore new genres of TV beyond the serialised procedural hits like Scandal and How to Get Away with Murder that the company is known for. Well, it's funny because I feel like what's so amazing about the... And they're serialized procedurals, so obviously as you're watching these doctors and lawyers and fixers do their job, you're still so invested in the ongoing drama. But those shows really continue to find audiences on Netflix. People would binge it. People would binge all of season one of Scandal and suddenly show up on ABC for season two. And so there's an appetite for that. And as I've said before... If we found the right one to do at Netflix, it would be so much fun because as Shonda and Pete Nowak continue to push boundaries on shows, especially Scandal and How to Get Away with Murder, I think that they they did everything they could in that world of broadcast standards and practices. But it's fun to think what would that kind of a show look like without those handcuffs, without having to be 42 minutes in the edit. And... Uh, getting to play with the structure and the format of binge watching, right? I keep thinking about how interesting it's going to be that in a world where everyone used to tweet along together Thursday night to watch the ABC shows, still do, there will now be shows, Shondaland shows, that some people will have seen all of and some people will not have seen all of at any given time, which is fascinating. And it changes the way you think about the storytelling. It also changes the way you think about how, how do you propel people to keep going at the end? To, if you don't have to wait a week, what can you assume the viewer will know right away from episode one to two, right? And there's no wait time. So all of that is incredibly exciting, just on like the brass tacks level. And then you get into the idea that Netflix has so many forms. The storytelling on Netflix takes all different forms. And the truth is, in our exclusive deal, we can make features, unscripted shows, documentaries, uh, drama and comedy. There's really no limit. And so what I'm so passionate about, what Sean and Betsy are so excited about, is that we're going to get to find the story we want to tell and the creator we're passionate about and let them do their thing. And, you know, within reason, right? And, and let them get to find the form that best services that story. And 
I suppose now, you know, the, the pilot system now must feel very outdated to you because you can just go straight ahead and, if you want to, do a... Going, yeah, going straight to series is a blast. And the, one of the most fun things about it is the writers are creating the entire season before it even starts shooting. So what that affords you is this moment to take a look at the trajectory and say, wait a minute, if I really want this character to be in this headspace in 10, what if I what if I go back and I see that? What if I go what if episode four is really what episode seven should be and you flip that? You get to look at it holistically in this amazing way. It's so incredible. But what the pilot system affords you is an ability to, first of all, you spend like four or five months creating that pilot. So you've kicked all those tires, then you shoot it. And then you evaluate on its feet things like, how's, is the cast working? Um, it, it does this feel like it could really sustain a whole season of television, let alone multiple. So I understand why people are clinging tightly in terms of if you have any risk aversion, it's nice to be able to really kick those tires before you go full hog. So what, do, what does a Shondaland sci-fi look like? Yes. So we, um, I, I'll just talk about this since I just spoke about it, but... Um, we and Matt Reeves' production company have partnered to take on Blake Crouch's Recursion, which is a brand new book that's just come out that I, I read in literally 15 hours straight. It, it's amazing. It's a time travel romance meets a save the world thriller set in a world where there is an incredible technology that complicates things in a very meaningful way. But at the end of the day, it's about human relationships. It's about marriage. It's, that's the kind of thing that really attracted us to it and, and thinking if there was ever going to be Shondaland sci-fi, this feels like it because the science, the technology, the futurism, all of that only helps to serve the emotional trajectory of the characters. That's what it's servicing. And it's, it's a beautifully written book. We're so excited to be able to do this project um, as a feature and as a series. And you also mentioned a half-hour comedy yes, that you're working Sunshine on. Yes, Sunshine Scouts, created by Jill Alexander. That came to us as a speck in a Bible. Jill's incredible brain. She has beaten out so much of this. And like Barry, for example, it is this highly serialized half-hour comedy, where, which I, I'm excited about because also when I think of the Netflix global world, I think, oh, what travels? What translates this comedy? And I think that if you're invested in these characters, in this absurd situation of being the only living girls on Earth for the moment... And going out there and happening to the world um, as teenage girls, then it's it's kind of this incredible thing of like, no matter if you get the jokes, you will want to keep watching. You will feel compelled. So, and that's obviously we're not in the apocalypse yet. Some would argue with me, but you know it's like five minutes in the future. It's a very grounded take, and and what I love is that it's about a bunch of girls who do have conflict, but it's not Lord of the Flies. They're they're going to have to, like you or I would as teenagers, figure out what the hell do we do next. So again, grounded nearby, grounded sci-fi really appeals to us. Netflix's use of data was a big point of discussion at Series Fest this year, after Ted Sarandos said the company doesn't use data to decide commissions, but does factor it into its decision making, putting the ratio split between art and science as around 70% and 30%. I asked Lee Holland, Senior VP of Current Programming at Lionsgate's Television Group, about how the US studio uses data. I think data is a really valuable tool and it can be used as one of many resources or tools in your toolbox when making decisions about television shows. I think I've never ascribed or prescribed an actual hard number to it, like 70-30 in the way that Ted did. 
Um, but I think it's it's um, it is a piece of the equation, and it's one that you can't ignore or deny. I think, as I had mentioned in my panel, um, data can be used for making small adjustments in your series if you're learning things through the data about who's watching your show or certain things in your show that are either working better than others or that audiences are responding to. Um, and data doesn't have to necessarily be, for those purposes, you know, hard collected data. It can be anecdotal data collected from social media trends, from word of mouth, from um, critical feedback. I think any information that you get is data and any data or information that you receive is power. It doesn't mean that you have to act on every piece of data that you collect. But it can be really helpful if you are staring at a fork in the road creatively with, with your show, then that data can help inform your own creative instincts. It can help inform you know, or reinforce what either you, your studio, your network, your non-writing producing partners all might be feeling and can, again, be part of that equation that sort of leads to a creative choice within the show. Um, it can also be used in how you're marketing the show. Um, for instance, if you have a piece of data about who your audience is um, or what segment of the audience is really connecting to your show in a more significant way than others, then that can be used when marketing your show in terms of what kind of cell you're using. Are you using a character cell? Are you using an ensemble cell? If you're talking about like a drama or a mystery, are you doing like a mystery? Are you doing a concept cell? Um, and so I think data can really be a powerful tool, but again, I like to approach it as one of many tools in your toolbox for both building and marketing your series. And so I guess some of that comes from uh, research that Lionsgate is doing itself, but I guess also from the streamers, uh, potentially all the broadcasters. And uh, Ted Sarandos mentioned that Netflix is becoming more forthcoming with its data, uh, both publicly and to producers. Is that something you're seeing happen? We haven't seen it happen exactly just yet, but we have been told that that is going to start happening more. Um, we at Lionsgate do have some shows on Netflix, and I would be, uh, I'm cautiously optimistic that we will start to see some of that data. For instance, um, we produce Orange is the New Black, which is in its final season, so I don't know that there's going to be any data there that's going to be helpful to us. We do also produce Dear White People for Netflix, um, and we have heard that there could be some, some data that's helpful to us that comes our way. Um, from, from Netflix. Holland spoke on a Pitching and Marketing Your TV Series panel at Series Fest, where he was joined by Laura Fisher, CEO of Paul Feig's Prodco Powder Keg. The company was set up by Fisher and Feig in 2018 to champion new voices with a commitment to female and LGBTQ creators as well as filmmakers of colour. I asked Laura about the fledgling company's slate of new projects. Our first year we heard um, five, we had 500 projects submitted to us. We only had time to pass on 160 of them. We did not take on the other 400 <laughs> projects. So I think when you're talking about that level of volume for even a boutique company, it's really about voice. It's about what is so distinct about your voice and why we should really like be pushing that voice out. And I think also being flexible about the format. There's a number of different platforms. There's an evolving business where d digital and television are no longer separate. Um, it's really more about like the, you know, is it interactive or is it short form or is it long form or is it genre blending? There's all these different ways to mix up what your story is. So I think when a creator comes in with a clear voice and they're flexible with how that story could be told ultimately, we're really excited about those kinds of projects. And what's the ultimate destination for a, a powder cake show? 
It could be anything. So our current slate spans uh, three features, two of which will be at Freeform or Disney Plus. Uh, one that's at YouTube as a half hour. We have a deal at Echo, which is interactive. We have a couple of shows on Snapchat. We have a show at Quibi, which is um, premium but also short form. Um, and then we have a couple of documentaries and uh, formats that are unscripted. So we really go everywhere. <laughs> and Powderkeg was specifically set up to um, focus on uh, projects from women, LGBTQI voices, um, all sorts of underrepresented voices. Um, where are you going to kind of source uh, those creators? Yeah, we've been inundated with those voices since the moment it came out that we were sort of putting a spotlight on and a special commitment to those filmmakers. But truly, that commitment is very wide. It's not that special at all. It's really just that we're putting a beacon around filmmakers that we think have a more unique story to tell. And for comedy, I think it's really important to keep that surprise element. If we haven't heard about what it's like to be on a Navajo reservation, but somebody pitches me a concept that's arrested development on a Navajo reservation, I think that's a really interesting take. So um, we've had um, stories come from all over, from within the industry, but we also started a second company called Break the Room, which is a diversity-forward writer's room that goes into separate communities to pull out writers that aren't traditionally in the TV business. So um, we went to Albuquerque for our Navajo writer's room, and it was all Navajo writers. They were all writers. They were novelists, poets, feature writers, documentarians. They are all creative, but they hadn't necessarily been or thought of themselves on a TV track. And I think that that level of creativity is really interesting. You can still create a really incredible product with some you know, um, guidance from a, a TV writer at the top. Fantastic. Um, and in terms of what you're showing here at Series Fest, can you tell me a bit about those projects? Yeah, so we did an incubator uh, of six short films written and directed by female directors. We were trying to create a better pipeline for Paul so that he had a better pipeline of diverse talent and female filmmakers that we wanted to work with. But when you're talking about a new company, we started a year and a half ago. It's going to be two years until we have our first open directing assignment. We wanted to work with these women now. So we created this program and set a prompt up where they all had to have a story in and around LA. And it was a point of identity. You know, LA is a very um, mis depicted place in media, but there's actually a tremendous amount of diversity that you don't actually get to see. So everybody picked a neighborhood. Uh, we got 40 pitches. We chose six. And these are the short films that are all proof of concept for series. So we have everything from um, a story in Pico Robertson, which is an Orthodox Jewish household, to Baldwin Hills, which is like a middle class black neighborhood, to we shot all night in an Asian supermarket for a Filipino story. And they're all really funny in really different ways. Obviously, U.S. is a big focus for, for powder keg, and there's a, such a wide variety of different voices that you can tap into yeah. uh, in the U.S. Are you looking kind of non-U.S. at all? Yeah, so we have, um, through Break the Room, our second company, we're doing our first writer's room in Canada in September. Uh, we're also doing a writer's room focused on India um, at the end of this month. And... Um, we also have ambitions. We've been contacted by some people in the Middle East for a room in Riyadh and are also exploring some other international places. So for us, the international market is very interesting, but I think comedy needs to be developed territory-specific um, because local language is what really captures the sense of humor. I don't think that you can just export U.S. humor to all those English-speaking countries. I translated a show one time from U.S. into Ireland, and it did. It was not funny. Uh, it did not work. And so I actually think Break the Room is this great vehicle to be able to develop comedy specifically for a territory. And just finally, um, I've just been kind of noticing in the UK, but also on Netflix, a slight uptick in sketch shows. Is the sketch show format coming back at all? 
I think it is, and I actually think Netflix is starting the comeback of this sketch show. IFC also has greenlit a really interesting sketch show, um, and David Person, who works on that, is here at some point in Series Fest. He'll be on my panel later. But I do think that for a while, sketch was taboo. It was like, oh, well, we get a lot of that, clips and whatnot. But um, Netflix specifically has an executive that oversees sketch right now. And I think that that's a way to capitalize on new talent you haven't heard of before, but only invest like 11, 12, 15 minutes. And then, but ultimately, yes, you're watching all of the series. Um, a Tim Robinson show is a great example. Um, I think you should leave. I just blasted through that in one night. And I think they're looking to do more of those. And we're excited about that. You can get young, fresh voices in, in that kind of format. That's all we have time for on this week's podcast. But be sure to stay up to date with all the latest industry developments by following C21 online, on Twitter and on mobile. Thanks for listening.